Hello, and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2016 Spring Retreat. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Leo Hanian, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor of economics and director of the Ettinger Family Program in Macroeconomic Research at UCLA. The title of his talk is The Economic Policies of the 2016 Presidential Candidates, and it was recorded on April 19th, 2016. It's, uh, it's a great pleasure to join you this morning and have a, uh, an opportunity to share ideas with you about, uh, about our current economy and also about the policy proposals that are being advanced by, by our presidential candidates. Um, and in order to do that, I'm first going to briefly summarize where the U.S. economy is after seven and a half years of, uh, of President Obama, um, to, put, to put that into context. And, you know, frequently I'm, I'm asked questions by people um, who say, you know, the president talks very positively about the economy. He speaks about how his policies have forced, uh, prevented a return of the Great Depression in 2000 and nine and have grown the economy, restored jobs, and put us back on track. Um, they say, well, is that, is that, is that accurate? Is the, did, did the president's glowing words really you know, sort of portray a, the economy we have right now? Um, so you can see some of the president's statements from, from some of the State of the Union addresses, and they do present a very positive picture of the U.S. economy. And I'm going to show you some pictures that will put his assessment in a, in a very different light. And I think his assessments of where we are are somewhat colored by what I would say is a, a misunderstanding of how the market economy process works and also a misunderstanding of how important it is for independent businesses, businesses to be able to be started and to be able to grow. So I've got a couple of quotes that'll give you a little bit of insight into how the president thinks about uh, the market economy. And so one quote I really like is, he says, the UPS and FedEx are doing just fine. It's the post office that's always having problems. Um, yeah, the post office is always having problems. Uh, the post office is remarkably inefficient. And as a government entity, it's saddled with enormously costly union work rules. In fact, as the post office has lost business to other providers of mail services, such as UPS and FedEx, <clears throat> they face times during the year or times during the week where not all of their workers can be adequately utilized in a particular office. Now, you might think that they would move those workers to other post offices or other locations where they could be more productive. Can't be done. Union does not allow that. So if you're a postal worker who goes into the office and says, I'm ready to work, and there's not enough work for you to do, you go off to a detention center, and you sit there. And you sit there the entire day, and about the only thing there is to do is look at the walls or take a nap. So that is one reason, Mr. President, why the post office is having so much difficulty. Um, another quote from the president, and you'll see this come up with um, Hillary Clinton's statements. It says, wages haven't gone up because boardroom decisions emphasize quarterly earnings. So here the president is talking about what people call short-termism. That is, workers are not benefiting, wages aren't growing because of a short-term rather than a long-term outlook. Well, it's really the exact opposite. Wages aren't growing because we have, we have a long-term productivity problem. Productivity growth for the last six years has slowed from a historic average of 2.5% per year to 0.9% per year. That, along with rising health care costs, is the primary reason why wages aren't growing. 
Now, I also mentioned the president has a different vision about the importance of entrepreneurship and the growth of new businesses. And here's you see some statements he's made. If you've got a business, you didn't build that. Somebody else made that happen. Um, if you spread the wealth around, that's a good thing. And I do think at a certain point, you've made en enough money. Okay, so with that in mind, let's take a look at some pictures of the U.S. economy. And the first one is a picture of inflation-adjusted economic output. This is what we call real gross domestic product, GDP, <clears throat> and it's measured relative to the size of the population. And you see the recession occurring about 2007, 2008, and that large dip down. And that blue line is now about 7% below the red dash. That red dash is our historic 2% per year growth. Now, if you add up the deviations between that red trend and what we've actually, what we've actually delivered, that's over $9 trillion of lost income and output. And this is the first time in the history of the U.S. economy where we have not gotten back to that red dash line. That red dash line characterizes our economy as far back as the late 1700s, and this is the only economy in the world that has created a 200-plus record of continuous stable economic growth. But we're in peril of having that, as you can see from this graph. Now, many people have asked me, well, didn't some of the initiatives, the government initiatives, restore jobs? Okay, well, here is a graph of the number of jobs, employment, as a fraction of the working age population. And you can see it was fairly stable between 2002 up to 2007. And then you see the enormous drop. We lost about 7% of our jobs. But those jobs really haven't come back. We're about 6.5 million jobs short of where we would be had we recovered. Now, this last picture I'm going to show you to summarize where we are. Uh, well, first, I'll show you that, well, in terms of the president's initiatives, I've, I've, I've taken that exact same picture and drawn in a timeline of some of the various initiatives. So you see TARP, that was the Troubled Asset Relief Program. You see QE1 through QE, QE4. You see the ARRA, which is the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. That was President Obama's uh, $817 billion stimulus plan. There's cash for clunkers. There's all sorts of government spending programs or temporary tax breaks that were provided. And it's hard to look at this picture and say it looks like they didn't really work very well. And in fact, ironically, employment has started to come back a little bit you know, with the elimination of some of these plans. Now, what concerns me most about the U.S. economy is what's happening with productivity. Since World War II, business productivity, and that's measured as output per hour worked, grows at about 2.5% per year. And what that means is our worker productivity doubles every 28 years. Now, since 2009, that growth rate has slowed from 2.5% to 0.9%. So we're no, longer, we're no longer doubling productivity every 28 years. If this continues, we'll be doubling productivity every 72 years. So this is the most important deviation that I see when I look at the current economy. And this is really what we need to do to turn things around. Because if we restore productivity growth, that restores the incentives to invest in new plant and equipment, to engage in new technological adoption, to hire new workers. So really, productivity is really what makes the business world go around. And I know you all, you all understand that. 
Um, and this is the most important departure that I've seen from us getting off track. Okay, now, so why has this happened? Why are we veering off track? And, and in my opinion, it's because while this remains the greatest economy in the world, we continue to veer away from opportunity and responsibility and free, in a free marketplace, to one of which there's additional restrictions and regulations and limits on what people can do and what people can trade, and reductions in the rewards from taking risk. And two I'll talk about briefly are what's happened with education and what's happened with regulation. And we just simply must improve educational outcomes in this country if we're going to get our country back on track and create opportunities for young people. Um, every two or three years, the OECD, an international economic or organization, tests students from around the world. Um, it's a test on mathematic uh, aptitude. And the U.S., time and again, almost always finishes near the bottom. Only one-third of our students are judged to be math proficient. This is a test that's given to 15-year-olds. To give you an idea of how bad this is, 20% of our 15-year-olds in California on a multiple-choice test make a mistake on identifying the fact that 2 over 4 and 7 over 14 are the same number. Now, at that level of mathematical literacy, that's really the cutoff for an individual who can adequately manage their fiduciary affairs in life. We've got one out of five, one out of five of our kids can't get that done. Um, this continues at higher levels of education. So we have about three times as many bachelor's degree recipients in arts and recreation and journalism as we do in what we call the STEM areas. STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Um, you know, why is that? We just aren't preparing our kids adequately in terms of mathematics and science training at the primary and secondary levels. And why is that? Well, most of the research done, and a lot of that research is done here at Hoover by Hoover scholars specializing in education, is teachers unions. Teachers unions that through tenure process that protects underperforming teachers by blocking merit-based pay that would pay the most, the, the most well-performing teachers the highest rate, and by blocking school choice, this is an important reason why your education outcomes are so bad. And to give you an idea of how important teachers are, the best teachers are incredibly valuable. So, Research done by many, 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 many researchers, and they all pretty much reach the same conclusion, is that if your child is fortunate enough to be K through 12, to have a teacher in the top 10 percentile of teaching ability, and this is measured on the basis of test scores, then that child will earn about $1 million more, per, $1 million more in lifetime income compared to a child who has a teacher at the 50th percentile. And it's a symmetric, so poor families that tend to be disproportionately represented in poorly performing schools, their children will earn $1 million less in lifetime income than a median teacher. So the best teachers are incredibly valuable. Reforms that pay the best teachers very well will attract talent into the education profession. 
The second aspect I'm going to talk about is a different type of regulation. And here I'm going to hone in on Dodd-Frank, uh, and in particular Dodd-Frank's Consumer Protection Bureau. Um, and I find this to be particularly egregious for a number of reasons. One is that we now have regulators determining what financial products will be offered to consumers. So this is really a financial services nanny who tells consumers what they can have and what they, what they can't have. And in addition, these regulators are allowed to go after financial services firms who act in an abusive fashion. Now, I know we have some attorneys in the audience, and if you're sitting next to one, you can ask them, well, what's the legal definition of abusive? There isn't one. Abusive means what the regulators want abusive to mean. Um, there's no oversight of the Consumer Protection Bureau. It doesn't get its budget from Congress. It gets its budget from the Federal Reserve. There's no bipartisan board that sits at the top of the Consumer Protection Bureau. There's a single director. And some of the actions by the Consumer Protection Bureau have been sufficiently destructive that now there's bipartisan support to rein in the Consumer Protection Bureau. In fact, imagine this. Imagine, uh, imagine a bureau trying to decide whether a lender acted abusively on the basis of looking at the last names of people who took out loans and then guessing whether they were minority. That's what they do. They reached a settlement with a lender on the basis of 235,000 loans where people paid higher interest rates and they were guessed to be minorities. Now there was no, there was no evaluation whether they actually were minorities or whether there was a business reason for why they might be paying higher interest rates such as less collateral or a poor credit score. Um, this just simply can't be an approach that's going to be healthy for economic growth. Okay, so with that backdrop, let's talk about the election. Um, so coming into this election, you might think could be a challenging political landscape for Republican nominees. And the reason I say that is because since 1988, there's been 240 electoral Democratic votes from states that have always voted Democrat. So in other words, since the 1988 election, for 28 years, a block of states has always voted Democrat always vote Democrat in each of the presidential elections, and that's good enough for 240 electoral votes. And remember, we only need, you only need 270 to win. Our state of California, New York, Massachusetts, and New Jersey combined for almost half of those 240 electoral votes. And remember, the, 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 uh, the definition of electoral votes, you get two because every state has two senators, and then it's equal to the state's number in the U.S. House of Representatives. Now, you might think the Democratic Party would look at this, at this last 28-year record and say, you know, we can, we can roll out almost anybody. And as long as we can get one or two swing states, we win the White House. Well, the way I see it, there's changes in the political landscape that I think are going to take us back away from this. So think about the following. So since 2008, the Democratic Party has lost 12 governorships. There's now two, 32 Republican governors, 17 Democrats, and one independent. 69 U.S. House seats, 13 Senate seats, over 900 state House seats. And when we think about this shift, I think the main reason is because of very weak economic performance that we've had since 2008. 
So I think voters are saying we want, we want something different. Now, political scientists have tried to figure out which are the swing states, and I've put the ones down here that have been identified. And you see a long list. And those with an asterisk are those states that have a Republican governor and also a state house majority. Uh, so you see those are Florida, Ohio, Carolina, Wisconsin, Nevada. So from the standpoint of is the White House open, I think absolutely the White House is open. Um, now, I don't have Michigan on this list. Now, Michigan has a Republican governor and a majority in the state house. Um, I think the Republican Party is taking a lot of the blame for what's happened with uh, Flint water. Um, so, that, so Michigan is no longer considered a swing state. It's considered a state that will vote Democrat. Um, and that is a state with a large number of electoral votes. Now, when we think about the election today and the economic issues, you have to go back a long time to find a coincidence of the amount of mudslinging and what you might call uncivil behavior, and I would say populism that you're seeing today. And we can go back to 1884, which is the election between Grover Cleveland from the Democratic Party and James Blaine from the Republican Party. And of course, we all remember Grover Cleveland. Nobody remembers James Blaine, uh, so we know who won that. Um, but protectionism and populism were the major themes at that time, as they are today. And the Republican Party was the party supporting tariffs and protectionism. And the populism at that time was farmers. Farmers didn't like the fact that inflation was very low and the, real, the inflation adjusted values of their deaths were high. Um, and the Democratic Party was supporting farmers. And mudslinging was remarkably rampant at this time. So on the Republican side, Grover Cleveland fathered a child out of wedlock. Um, and you couldn't find a newspaper at that time where there wasn't a political cartoon of Grover Cleveland cringing and there was a woman holding a child who was crying, saying, Mama, where's my pa? And Cleveland admitted to fathering the child, although there was no sure paternity test at that time. Cleveland and his law partner, Oscar Folsom, had both, both had relationships with, with, with a woman. Um, and the woman, very strategically, she played, uh, she was very smart. Her name was Maria Halpin. And she played, she played this very well. She named the child Oscar Folsom Cleveland. Um, and um, so the Democrats figured they needed to do something. So they came up with the battle cry of Blaine, Blaine, the Continental Liar from Maine. Now, Blaine was from Maine. And the Continental Liar came from the idea that Blaine had received a payment of $64,000, which at that time was an enormous sum. He'd received a payment of $64,000 from um, the uh, uh, Union Railroad Corporation for essentially worthless uh, railroad bonds. And this was considered to be payola for Blaine's support of the Intercontinental Railroad uh, at that time. Um, so this continued and it was a very, very tight election. Uh, Cleveland did not get 50% of the vote and he, he won only by about um, half a percentage point. So you have to go back a long time to see something similar to what we see today. But what I will say is that at that time it was a very messy political season. Um, we did come out of it uh, in a healthy way. We had some very good presidents uh, after that, including Teddy Roosevelt. 
So um, there can be light at the end of, of the tunnel. Um, so with, uh, with, that, with that in mind, what I'm going to do now is talk about presidential candidate proposals, uh, policy proposals. I'm going to frame this purely in the basis of economics, uh, not so much uh, social or cultural issues or political issues, but um, I'll throw in a pot shot here and there where I think uh, one is maybe warranted. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to evaluate their policies on the basis of, uh, you know, will their proposals restore freedom, will it limit government, and will it honor the Constitution? And from this standpoint, I think about spending and taxes, business regulation, restrictions on labor. We've seen, you know, California's going to have a $15 minimum wage down the road. Uh, education, health, trade, immigration, what, what candidates will do is to promote business formation. Um, most candidates have been fairly silent on many of these categories, and they've been most detailed in terms of spending and taxes, so I'll spend most of my time on that. And I'll discuss um, Trump and Cruz on the Republican side and Clinton and Sanders on the Democratic side. I won't discuss Kasich uh, largely because he just hasn't said an awful lot about his policy proposals. Um, and you can, you can learn a lot about their policy proposals by going to their websites. Um, and Kasich mostly has talked about what he's accomplished in Ohio and not so much what he has proposed uh, for the country at large. So I'll, I'll speak about those four candidates. Uh, and I'll give you a little sort of one-liner in terms of what I think about, about the candidates in terms of their economics. So when I look at Trump, I would say, you know, sort of neither fish nor fowl. He's not a conservative. He's not a small government guy. Uh, you wouldn't call him a liberal like Bernie Sanders. Um, but in terms of when I look at Trump, and you, you sort of get the feeling that, hey, if I run government, it'll be, it'll be great. Um, and what does Trump talk about? Well, he's proposed an enormous tax cut, um, limited spending cuts, uh, and that's going to turn into big deficits. The Tax Foundation has estimated that the deficit under Trump will grow by about $10 trillion. In terms of health care, um, Trump has suggested in the past, he's, he's said, I kind of like single-payer systems. Uh, and now more recently, he says, everyone's going to be covered. It'll be fantastic. Um, he talks about expanding health savings accounts, which I think is a really good idea, and expanding insurance competition, which is a really good idea. Um, but there's nothing in his proposal that's going to cover, cover everyone. Um, he talks about reforming business regulation. He hasn't provided any details, um, no details about labor. Um, with trade, he's closer to Bernie Sanders than he is to anyone else. Um, he talks about enormous protectionism. Um, I recently had an op-ed um, in uh, Investors Business Daily about Trump and free trade. Um, if you're interested, get in touch with me. I'll send you the link. With uh, education, he wants to eliminate common core and expand sh school choice, which I think is a, 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 a good idea. Uh, in terms of immigration, um, he wants to build a wall and deport those with criminal records. Now, previously he talked about deporting all undocumented immigrants. Um, that no longer seems to be the case, at least in terms of what he has um, on his website. Uh, Cruz, I would say, is the most conservative in terms of economic policies, the most oriented towards uh, free markets. Um, I like his tax plan. It's a flat tax rate. Uh, the flat tax was discussed here uh, in a book by two Hoover scholars, uh, Bob Hall, who's an economist, and Alvin Babushka, who's a political scientist, in a book they wrote um, roughly 30 years ago. And 
the Tax Foundation, which is a nonpartisan research group that assesses tax policy and whose goal it is to produce a simpler, more efficient tax code, has graded all the tax plans produced by Trump and uh, Cruz and Clinton and Sanders. Um, and according to the Tax Foundation, the Cruz plan will generate the most economic growth uh, of, of any of those that have proposed. And I'll talk about that tax plan in more detail in a couple of minutes. Um, he would eliminate Obamacare, uh, expand health savings accounts, allow, allow cross-state insurance coverage, and uh, raise the Medicare age. Um, Cruz has campaigned, um, I think, loudly on ending corporate subsidies. Um, if you watch the debate in Iowa, uh, where subsidies for ethanol and corn production are very important, um, he won Iowa. And he said, hey, you know what? We can't provide, you know, everybody can't get a subsidy. So, you know, the, but, you know it has to start someplace. Um, and I think that's a good idea. Um, now, he wants to end the IRS, the Education Department, the Energy Department, the Commerce Department, and uh, um, HUD. Um, uh, good luck with eliminating um, five, uh, five of those departments. Um, um, in terms of immigration, he wants to, he wants to uh, secure the borders. He supports Keystone and offshore drilling. He opposes the EPA Clean Power Plan, which uh, will, will certainly be costly. Um, in terms of education, he wants to put in some market forces, such as expanding school choice. He opposes the higher minimum wage. Um, I would say he's the, by far the most free trade of any of the four candidates. Um, although he, um, he, he changed on his, he once supported fast tracking for the Trans-Pacific Partnership and he, uh, he backed off of that. Um, so when I look at his economic suggestions, I think those are probably uh, the best in terms of getting us, uh, getting us back on track. Um, Clinton, I would say the one-liner there is, I think, you know, sort of doubling down on, uh, on President Obama. Um, she has proposed tax increases, um, additional regulations, business regulations, particularly in finance. And really, um, on the Democratic side, Clinton and Sanders are um, kind of competing with each other to see who's more anti-banking and who's more anti-Wall Street and who will build up you know, more, more regulations and restrictions uh, to, uh, uh, to, quote, protect, uh, protect Main Street. Um, <clears throat> now, she talks about rebuilding infrastructure. And you may remember back when we had the President's um, American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, he talked about shovel-ready projects and restoring bridges and roads and so forth. Um, only 3%, only 3% of the stimulus plan went for infrastructure, just 3%. So politicians have been talking about rebuilding infrastructure for years, and it just never gets done. The American Society of Civil Engineers comes out with a grade for U.S. infrastructure uh, every year, and they also provide grades at the uh, at the state level. Um, every year we get a D, <laughs> not a C, not a B, not an A. We get a D, um, and I think California in some years have gotten less than a D. Um, so rebuilding infrastructure, absolutely, this has to be done. Um, it doesn't seem to get done. So um, it's a good idea. I don't know what her details are for doing that. Um, now, she wants to have a trading tax to penalize short-term profits. So what you'll see from her is a lot of talk about, you know, this short-termism, that short-term 
The short-term drive for profits is, is depressing the economy, and I know of no evidence uh, or economic logic that would suggest that that's in any way a problem for the U.S. economy. But um, taxing, uh, taxing, taxing uh, people's uh, trades is, is not a good idea. Um, Sanders came out of nowhere um, to challenge her, and at some level, um, he's really defining the Democratic agenda now. And, and as he becomes more popular and continues his interest in you know, very left policies, she's had to kind of run along behind him. Um, so she once called the Trans-Pacific Partnership the gold standard of trade deals, and now she opposes it. Um, and I suspect that's largely because Sanders be has become so popular. He's won some of the last eight primaries. Um, he really seems to be setting the agenda uh, among the Democrats. Um, she proposes college subsidies. Um, I worry about this. Um, I mean, I, I teach college students, so it would certainly be good for my business. But right now, most junior college students don't even finish, don't even finish community college. Um, and so we're really putting the cart before the horse when we talk about, oh, let's subsidize college. Many people going to college don't have the skills because they've come out of a dysfunctional high school. Um, case in point, some of, the, some of the largest spending per pupil in the country is in the Newark School District. They're among, I think, the top five or six districts in terms of spending per pupil. Hardly any of those kids go on to college. Those who do, they need remedial training in math and English on the rate of 97 to 98%. Okay. Um, so spending doesn't mean success, and simply putting a kid in a college classroom does not mean success. Um, she supports a $15 minimum wage, which in my opinion uh, would be a big, big mistake. Um, she's supported by very politically powerful teachers' unions. Um, now she talks about entrepreneurship, and she talks about how she came up with a family from entrepreneurs. Um, she hasn't presented any details on that. Um, but she's going to have tax increases and in particular inefficient taxation of capital that will keep the economy depressed and perhaps depress it further. Um, now Bernie Sanders, the one-liner for him, well he says it all, he's a democratic socialist. Um, he talks about 18 trillion in new spending over 10 years and that will put the size of our government sort of comparable to Western and Northern Europe. So. Um, you know, welcome to Scandinavia under, uh, under Bernie Sanders without, you know, the quaintness of, of Scandinavia. Um, new business regulations, yes, he talks uh, every Democratic debate, every time he speaks, he talks about breaking up the, the major banks. Um, he wants single-payer health care, uh, free college, grow Social Security. Um, where is this money going to come from? Well... <laughs> Uh, you know, you can look around the room, there's going to be a big tax increase on the most productive earners. Um, you're going to be looking at marginal tax rates, uh, people estimate of about 70%. Uh, he would like to expand early child edu education, which, um, you know, some programs are incredibly successful. Uh, not all, but some programs are incredibly successful, but he wants to sp spend more on failing schools. Uh, I personally think school choice and expanding competition among schools is how to get schools to better perform rather than rewarding schools that aren't doing a good job by giving them more money. Um, the newer case sort of tells you money is not the answer to how to fix schools. Um, he's the most anti-free trade uh, person among the group. Um, 
he would like to reverse trade deals that go back to Jack Kennedy. Um, General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which is called GATT, uh, NAFTA, which came under Bill Clinton, uh, most, famous, most favored nation status, and he wants to stop the Trans-Pacific Partnership. He also is advocating a $15 an hour minimum wage. And I think um, his economic platform would create um, you know, the biggest shift away from free enterprise in, in, that we've seen in generations. Um, now, I'm going to spend a moment talking in a little bit more detail about their tax and spending plans, but you know, there's a challenge in terms of implementing a responsible budget. We haven't had a responsible budget in a long time. Uh, you know, and the dictum among economists is, you know, to spend is to tax. You know, somebody, somebody has got to have to pay for it at some point. And you can't legitimately, from an economic point of view, you can't separate tax and spending plans, but most candidates do because politically they're rewarded for this. Politically, nobody wants to hear about, oh, well, if you want to spend more money, it's going to have to come from someplace, and here's my tax increases. And the publicly held debt has doubled since 2008 to about 80% of GDP. Um, and as you heard yesterday um, um, from John Kogan, uh, big changes in spending are going to have to occur to prevent future unsustainable deficits. So keep that in the back of your mind. Um, all right, so let me talk briefly about Trump's tax plan. Um, he, he advocates a progressive tax rate. This goes back to the theme of populism. So you'd say Trump is a populist, a uh, tax rate of 0 to 25 percent. As you remember from Mitt Romney's unsuccessful 2012 campaign, 47 percent pay no taxes. That was absolutely correct. And under Trump, it would be a little bit higher than that. More people would pay no taxes. Uh, he would reduce the corporate income tax rate to 15 percent, which I think is a good idea. Uh, try to get, in terms of trying to get cash back held abroad, there would be a 10 percent tax on repatriated earnings. Um, he would eliminate the alternative minimum tax and the estate tax, uh, phase out itemized deductions, um, maintain Social Security. The tax foundation estimates his tax plan would increase the deficit by $10 trillion. Now, in response to this, he says, well, I'm going to cut government enormously. Well, he thinks he can cut defense spending but get a better defense outcome. Uh, you know, <laughs> many people have said that. Uh, good luck with that. Um, you know, there's an off-quoted political statement, which is, I'm going to cut waste, fraud, and abuse. And in particular, he talked about there were um, six and a half million people, very old people, who were collecting Social Security. Well. As a business executive, you can't always get into details, and this is an important detail that he missed. Um, six and a half million people over the age of 106 are not collecting Social Security. Six are. Um, now, there are, uh, there are 6,499,994 Social Security numbers that are open of people who are that age, that have not, that have not been closed out for reasons that no one really knows. There's, you know, but there's not six that many people receiving Social Security. Um, so look for big deficits under, under Trump. Um, Cruz has proposed a flat tax rate, a uh, flat personal rate of 10%. Um, larger uh, larger um, um, uh, standard deduction. Um, he eliminates the corporate tax and the payroll tax, and he replaces that with a 16% tax on income less investment in intermediate goods, and this is called a business transfer tax. And the way this works is, imagine you're a baker. Well, you've got some revenue. You buy a new oven, you subtract that off. You buy some sugar and flour and baking powder, you subtract that off, and you pay a 16% tax on what's left. 
So I like that because it doesn't tax investment. And a lot of economic theory suggests you shouldn't be taxing capital income. Um, he would eliminate the AMT, uh, the, the net investment income tax, Medicare surtax, and the estate tax. Um, the tax foundation grades uh, his tax plan as the best. It would expand the capital stock by about 45% over 10 years, um, expand jobs by about five, uh, 5 million jobs. Okay, on the Democratic side, we have Clinton. She would have a 4% tax surcharge. It would raise the top rate to 43.6%. And she's got a very complicated, and in my opinion, inefficient system of taxing capital gains. Um, and it sort of depends on how long you hold the asset. So for Clinton, long-term is good and short-term is bad. And again, economics doesn't necessarily tell you that there's any, that, that there's any logic to that. Um, the short-term capital gains tax rate could be as high as 47.4%. Um, she would have a high frequency trading tax. So if you buy an asset day, you want to sell it next month, well, get ready to pay a tax on that. Um, the, tax the tax foundation judges her tax plan, particularly taxation capital gains, to be very inefficient. And her tax plan is judged to shrink the economy substantially. Um, and she's got a bunch of a uh, spending plan, about $1 trillion over 10 years and she'd put the estate tax back to 45%. How about Bernie Sanders? Um, well, you know, I didn't come here today to tell you that, you know, his economics is completely nuts, but, but it's completely nuts. <laughs> so um, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of bullet points on that slide. <laughs> um, so he would, so some of the highlights, um, you know, some economists have estimated the top marginal rate go up to about 70% or more. He would put the estate, the estate tax to 65%. Um, this, we would lose, the tax foundation says we would lose six million jobs, five trillion dollars worth of the capital stock, and add eight trillion dollars of new debt. Um, and economists who have advised uh, President Obama, uh, such as Christy Romer, who teaches across the way at Berkeley, uh, have been very critical of his, uh, of his fiscal plans. Um, so let me kind of sum up, and I'm happy to, uh, to, to take questions. Um, so since 2008, we've lost about $9 trillion of income. And in my opinion, those losses have accumulated and continue because of badly designed regulatory policies, spending policies, tax policies, and, and education policies. Um, I think nonpartisan assessments of various plans suggest that the Clinton-Sanders policies will shrink the economy, uh, particularly the Sanders policies with very high tax rates. Um, in my opinion, the Cruz plan is the best one for economic growth. Can it be fiscally responsible? Well, the plan he has in place right now would grow the deficit, not nearly as much as, uh, as Trump or Sanders. His plan would grow the deficit by about $780 billion over 10 years. Um, it may be the case that with a slightly higher flat tax rate um, on businesses and or individuals, it could be fiscally sound. Um, let me just sum up by saying we've been in difficult positions before. The country veers off sometimes, but comes back to one in which freedom and incentives and opportunity are promoted. Um, and that results in better policies, and uh, better policies will get us back on track. And, uh, and I think there's every reason to believe that once we get better policies, we'll make up for the losses that we've seen for the last eight years. Thanks so much. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit 
hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.